0: Well, as we continue this morning in worship, we continue reflecting on this reality of our communion with God. This morning, we have the privilege, just as we do every month, to commune with our God, or at least to recognize the communion that we have with God because of what Jesus Christ has established for us on the cross. Once a month we have the opportunity and the privilege to not only sing our faith, to not only listen and submit to our faith, but also to see our faith with our very own eyes. And so this morning we are going to start a new series of sermons, which I will explain in a second, on the nature of God and the Holy Spirit. And so as we do that, let us turn to the Lord in a word of prayer this morning uh, as we believe and trust that he will be with us as we seek to hear from his word and to learn more about the God that we worship and serve. Let us pray this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your grace towards us. We're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and that you sent your Son into this world in order that we might have fellowship with you. In order that we might commune with you. In order that we might hear from you as your word declares your character and your grace. That we might speak with you through prayer. That we might trust in all that you have done for us in the person and work of Christ. As we follow him in Trust and obedience and faith. Father, would you be with us this morning as we seek to commune with you through the elements that are presented to us each and every month. Even as we give ourselves over to the scripture to know who you are. We're so thankful for your grace this morning and every morning. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we gather to commune with our God. The idea of communing with God is something that is quite unique to Christianity. You see, in most pagan religions, especially that prevailed in biblical times, the gods were mysterious and capricious, forever removed from the subjects that they dominated. The close relationship that the God of Israel had with his people set apart the Jewish religion from all other pagan religions that surrounded it. This extended into the coming of the Son of God, that is, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and actually interacted personally with his creation. The dawn of Christianity advanced the reality of an interpersonal God more than any other religion before it or after. And so when we gather to worship each and every Sunday, we declare again and again that God desires to commune with us. That he desires to interact with his children. That he desires to guide us and to direct us to speak to us and to be spoken to. That we would declare his praise to all the nations and that we would pray to him offering up our prayers of praise and supplication. You see, our God, hear this beloved and believe it this morning, our God is a personal God. And we can enter into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He has done for us on the cross. That's the very reality that we recognize this morning together. And the reason we know this The reason we know that God is a personal God, the reason we know that Christ died for our sins in order to restore our fellowship to God is because God has revealed himself to us. The only reason we know who God is is because he has taken it upon himself to reveal himself to us. And this revelation that we find in the Bible is at the heart of sound doctrine. Now, I know a word like doctrine can often have negative connotations. I'm sure you have heard the phrase before that doctrine is what divides us. And if that is the case, it is merely the case Because doctrine is what defines who God is. You see, doctrine may divide, but it's because doctrine defines. Our doctrine, our teaching, reveals exactly what we believe about who God is. Or rather, how God has chosen to reveal Himself to be. And therefore, our doctrine is the basis upon which we build our relationship with our God. You see, in order to love someone, we must understand who it is that we love. In order to love God, we must know The God whom we serve and who has called us into fellowship with himself. And we must know him truly. Now, This is where doctrine comes into play. Doctrine is intended to lead us into a deeper love and worship of God. Because doctrine defines in greater clarity the God that we love and worship. You see, truth ought to fuel our worship. Theology, or what we know about who God is as He has revealed Himself in the Bible, ought to spark in our hearts a deeper and greater love and appreciation of that God. You see, we should not study the Bible just for study's sake. We shouldn't study Systematic theology just for study's sake. We shouldn't read our devotionals in the morning just for reading's sake. We shouldn't pray with God in our closets just for praying's sake. We should do all of these things because they lead us into a deeper understanding of God and therefore a deeper relationship. To God. John Aldag in his Manual of Theology said this, and you can find the quote on the bulletin in your insert. He says, The study of religious truth ought to be undertaken with a view to the improvement of the heart. When learned, it ought not to be laid on the shelf as an object of contemplation, but it should be deposited deep in the heart where its sanctifying power ought to be felt. To study theology for the purpose of gratifying curiosity is an abuse of what ought to be regarded as most holy. See, our doctrine defines who we believe God to be so that we can love and worship Him more thoroughly and more correctly. If you're filling in the blanks in the insert in your bulletin, Let me say that again for you so that you can get all those blanks. Doctrine defines who we believe God to be so that we can love Him and worship Him more thoroughly and more correctly. And so instead of that common mantra, doctrine divides, I pray that we would rather be characterized by the mantra doctrine defines. So the question that we are always striving to answer as believers in Christ and even as human beings is who is this God that we commune with? Now we believe here at Berean Bible Fellowship Church, that that God whom we commune with is defined in the Bible. That the Bible itself is God's self-revelation. That He has declared through the holy apostles and prophets His nature and character and His works so that we might know and worship Him. And we further believe, here at Berean Bible Fellowship Church, that our articles of faith have faithfully summarized the teaching of Scripture so that we might understand who God is in a more systematized or categorical fashion. And so this morning, we are going to start a new series throughout the summer. It's a series that I pray will help define the God who we love and serve. Now, I know some of you may have come this morning anticipating a new series on the Gospel of Luke, which we will get to. But before we get to Luke, I thought over the summer months, it might be good for us to take a short break from working through a book, And look at what I believe to be a more systematic understanding of who God is. And I pray that the articles of faith will guide us in that study. And we spent a lot of time in 1 John defining who Jesus Christ is. That is the second person of the Trinity, both the Son of God and the Son of Man. And since we spent so much time defining Jesus Christ, I thought it would be a good opportunity to also take some time defining who God the Father is, as well as God the Holy Spirit. And so through the rest of the summer, that is what we will do. We will spend several weeks looking at what most systematics call, theology proper, or the study of God the Father. And then we will finish off our summer months by looking at pneumatology or the study of the Spirit. And I pray that our articles of faith will help us in this endeavor. You'll notice in your bulletin insert that you have two of our articles of faith. And they're where the articles of faith start in their treatment of the Godhead. What we see in Article 2 1 is that the articles of faith define for us what the Trinity is. Notice it with me in your insert bullet in the insert in your bulletin. It says there are three persons in the Godhead the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, eternally equal in power and glory. Now, we won't spend any time this morning seeking to define the Trinity, but I think it's important that we understand as we look at, first and foremost, that doctrine of the Trinity, that we serve a God that has a very complex nature. That our God is one eternal and infinite being who has eternally existed in three distinct yet undivided persons. Now this is wholly beyond our realm of understanding. And if you ever try to try to explain the Trinity to someone, you will find yourself searching For an illustration that fits our definition. And let me say at this point, you will never find one that's sufficient to illustrate the doctrine of the Trinity. And so we should probably just stop trying. But what we learn about God in the Bible is that God is a complex being. That God is not a simple being. That God can hardly be defined by 280 characters. And sometimes the more simplistic that we try to make God, the farther away we get from His true nature and character. To say simply that God is a God of love is not to take into consideration the multifaceted nature of God's being and the balance of His perfection. In order to know God rightly, sometimes we have to maintain the tensions that exist within the Godhead in order to maintain a perfectly Balanced nature. Sometimes we just have to declare that God is one in three. And that the reason we believe that to be true is because the scriptures have revealed it to us. Those tensions are important for us. And so what I want to do this morning is look at those characteristics of God that we find in our articles of faith on God the Father. And we'll see within these two realities, one that God is transcendent, but also that God is Im- imminent, that God maintains this perfect balance between being over and above his creation, but also being intimately involved In his creation. Notice it with me this morning. As we look at. In your bulletin insert. Our article of faith. On God the Father. Article 3-1. Read it along with me this morning. It says this. There is but one living and true God. Imminent. Transcendent infinite in being and perfection, pure spirit, invisible, immutable, eternal, almighty, all-wise, most holy, most free, most loving, most gracious, most merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sins, He will by no means clear the guilty. As we work through this series on theology proper, that is, who is God the Father, I trust that we will take each one of those statements individually and try to unpack what they mean. And this morning, I want to take those first two. What does it mean that God is transcendent and imminent? Let's look at the first one this morning. If you're following along in the insert in your bulleted, the first one is that our God is transcendent. Our God is transcendent. What does that word transcendent mean? Now, I know some of you might hear a word like transcendence, And immediately check out. And say, that word is just too hard for me to grasp. And so I'm just going to give up here. I'm just going to stop listening. and, And I'll just pick it up when he gets to something easier. But I would beg of you, please don't do that. Because it's not necessarily the word that matters. It's what the word says about our God. It's what the word communicates to us, his creatures, about the nature of the God in whom we serve. And therefore, what does that word transcendent mean? Well, if you consult an English dictionary, the term means to go beyond ordinary limits. Transcendent means to surpass or exceed the natural order. And so when we talk about God as transcendent, we talk about the God who is outside or beyond the created and natural order. And since he is outside of the natural order, he rules over the natural order. John MacArthur in Biblical Doctrine defines transcendence as God's Otherness or separateness from creation and the human race. Grudem in his systematic theology says that the transcendence of God means that God is far above the creation. In the sense that he is greater than creation and independent of his creation. Now this is far different from a teaching like pantheism that believes that God is made up of all creation. That God is, in essence, a very part of the creation and that the creation is a very part of God. In Christianity, we would not say that God is the trees, or that God is the clouds, or even that God is man. No, biblical Christianity and the doctrine of transcendence puts God outside of the created order and sovereign over the created order instead of being subject to it because he is inside of it. When we speak of God's transcendence, we are speaking of his absolute ability to create and maintain all things through the word of his power. And we see this in a passage like Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to the very first book, very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where we see... This reality of transcendence revealed to us in Genesis chapter 1. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, but this morning we read in Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 that in the beginning God created. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God spoke and said, Let there be light. And there was light. You see, in the beginning, God created. God created trees and mountains. God created valleys and streams. God created birds and beasts. God created the snakes that slither on the ground and the fish that swim in the sea. He created the clouds and the rain, the wind and the waves. And yes, He even created men and women. And since God created all these things, then He is by necessity separate from them, and sovereign ruler over them. Notice what Psalm 135 says, which you can find on the insert in your bulletin. The psalmist declares in Psalm 135, verse 5, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, He it is who makes the clouds rise and the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God is over his creation. And therefore, he is separate from his creation. Now we can see this truth illustrated in a very small way in the world around us. God is separate from his creation, just like a table is separate from a carpenter. You see, a table may reflect a carpenter's skill and creative genius, but it is wholly outside of his person. A table and a carpenter are not one and the same. A table is not an extension of the carpenter, as if the table were an arm of the carpenter or a leg of the carpenter. No, a carpenter literally stands over and above his work and determines its usefulness. Much like God stands over and above all creation and therefore determines itself. Its usefulness. Beloved, we are God's creation. And therefore, God determines what we are and what we ought to be. As much as our culture desires to confuse that notion, what we learn in the scripture is that God created all things. And therefore, God has the right and the ability to define what those things are and how they ought to function. And it's unfortunate that this has to be said this morning. But beloved, there are only two genders because God declares and determines that there are only two genders. And those two genders possess the greatest amount of glory to God and usefulness to the created order. And we see this again in Genesis chapter 1. I trust that you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 1. Jump down to verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And if you jump down to verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so what we understand about the transcendence of God is that God is above us, that God is separate from us, that he is outside of our normal daily lives and experiences, and therefore he is able to declare and determine who we are and what we are to be. Isaiah 45 verse 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. And so as Christians, we ought to say and we should say that God is not like us. That God is outside of us. And more importantly, in our culture, that God is is above us and that we as his creatures are subject to him beloved this is an important doctrine to know and establish you see for some the transcendence of God might cause concern and consternation but for us it should cause hope and confidence we should know why we exist. We should know how we ought to conduct ourselves because God has revealed it to us in His Word. And therefore, we are called to submit and to trust in a God who is outside and above us. But you see, there's a second thing that we learn about our God in this article. Not only does God is God outside of us, but God is also among us. God is with us. God desires to walk alongside of us. God desires to minister to us. God is not a deist. He is not some cosmic clockmaker who wound up the clock... And then allowed it to just tick away until the end of all things. No, beloved. God is intimately involved in maintaining and sustaining His created order. And we call this reality the doctrine of God's imminence. If you're following along again in your bulletin insert. The two things that we learn about God. The tension that exists between Uh, Between our great God is that God is both transcendent and our God is imminent. Our God is imminent. The Articles of Faith, chapter 3, verse 1 says, But there is one living and true God, imminent and transcendent. If we did not have the doctrine of imminence to stand alongside the doctrine of transcendence, then God would be aloof and uninterested. There would be no such thing as communion. Because we would not have a God interested in communing with His creation. Now this was often how the pagan religions depicted their gods in their writings. The gods were those who had much better things to do And much higher concerns than the affairs of men. And maybe those gods could be allured by gifts and sacrifices. But in most Near Eastern mythologies, the gods were off fighting some epic heavenly battles. And didn't have time to meddle in the affairs of men. Beloved, we see something like this, similar in that idea of agnosticism. That God cannot be known. That God has not revealed himself. That God would rather stand aloof and let us decide and determine who God might be. But beloved, we do not have a God like that. We have a God who certainly is above all things, but we also have a God who is among us and desires to be with us and therefore has revealed himself to us. God's immanence teaches us that God is everywhere present with his creation. That God is near to us. That God is intimately involved in maintaining the created order and directing all things and even our individual lives to his glory and our good. Job chapter 12, verse 10 says, In His hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. God is actively maintaining the life and breath of all living things. And we see this in a passage like Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 25, which you can find on the insert in your bulletin. Acts chapter 17 Verse 24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord and of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Again, Grudem says that the technical term used to speak of God's involvement in creation is the word imminent. Meaning, remaining in creation. The God of the Bible is no abstract deity removed from and uninterested in his creation. The Bible is the story of God's involvement with his creation and particularly the people in it. Hear this beloved and believe it this morning. God is committed to the created order. God is committed to you and to me. And we see this commitment in God keeping His covenants to a thousand generations. God making a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that He keeps in the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is intimately involved and desires to know and be with us in the midst of our hardship and our sufferings. God condescends, and He enters in to each one of our lives as we go about our own daily responsibilities and hardships. And sometimes this is easy for us to forget. Sometimes we look around as if God is nowhere to be found. But beloved, let me assure your hearts this morning that God is always around. That might instill fear into your hearts, and it ought to. But it ought also to instill confidence in your hearts. Because God never leaves you, nor forsakes you. And so if you are here this morning, and you are in the midst of a trial, or suffering of some nature, know and understand that God is both sovereign over it, but He is also in it with you. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up or dresses their wounds. Just like a loving father or tender physician delicately tends to the hurts of those in his care so God meets us in the midst of our lives and our suffering and our hardship and he ministers to our needs. Because of God's eminence, we know that God is actively involved in the unfolding of human history and even in our lives. And that, beloved, He does, even as Romans 8.28 says, He works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we see this especially in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter one, verse 23, "Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because God is transcendent, He is sovereign over our circumstances, and because He is imminent. He is sympathetic in our circumstances. And this is so important for us to know and understand, beloved. Because God is transcendent, He is beyond time and space. More accurately, He is above time and space. Because God is transcendent, he stands above the natural order and therefore is even to suspend or is even able to suspend the laws of creation themselves if he pleases to do so. Yes, God could even overcome death and hell and win a decisive victory over sin. And he did so in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a work that we recognize this morning in communion. It's a work that God had determined to do before the creation of the world. It's a work that He promised to do in Genesis chapter 3. And it's a work that He fulfilled in the coming of His Son Jesus Christ. And in His crucifixion on the cross. And in His resurrection three days later. And even in His ascension into heaven. God is the sovereign ruler of creation because He stands above it. Which means, beloved, that there is nothing in your circumstances that God cannot overcome. If He so chooses to do so. There is nothing in your circumstances that God has not known now or throughout all eternity. There is nothing in your circumstances, hear this, that God is not sovereignly directing for your good and for his glory. Yes, even your hardships, God is using to bring about even death to self in order that he might display his glory more and more through our own lives And the relationships that we have to one another around us. And the question is this morning. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is with you in your life? Do you believe that God is sovereignly directing the affairs of your life? In order to bring about your greatest good. Can you sing with the psalmist in every situation that it is well with my soul? The story of Horatio Spafford, the author of It Is Well With My Soul, is a tragic yet inspiring story. After the Chicago fire of 1871, Spafford had lost most of his fortune but decided it would be good to go on a holiday to Europe with his wife and four daughters. Business kept him from sailing with his family to Wales, but he decided that he would join them shortly after on another vessel across the Atlantic. But on the journey, the ship that was carrying his wife and daughters struck another vessel and the ship sank, drowning all of his four daughters. The youngest, only two years old, was stripped from his mother's arms, from her mother's arms, as the waves of the sea tossed them to and fro. And when his wife, Anna, sends the telegraph back, she begins it by saying, I alone was saved. Spafford, hearing of this great tragedy, boards the next ship to Wales. And as they sail over the spot where the vessel holding his family had soon before sank, he penned the words of the greatest hymn and the most comforting hymn known to the Christian church. It is well with my soul. As he reflected... On the doctrine of God's transcendence, as he reflected on the doctrine of God's imminence, he understood that no matter the trials that beset him, God was sovereign over them and God was with him in them. And therefore, he could sing, and I trust and believe that we can sing this morning that it is well with our souls. No matter the trials that you are facing, do you believe this morning that God is transcendent and that God is imminent? Might you use these truths and realities this week as you seek to worship Him? Let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful for Your grace towards us. We're so thankful for Your work in each one of our lives, that it certainly is not finished. That you continue to mold us and shape us into the image of your beloved Son. And that often that image comes through suffering. As you chip away at the hardness of our exteriors, as you chip away, at the remaining old man that still exists within us. And as you continue to conform us into the image of of your Son, we know and believe and trust that you use hardships to do so. Father, would you impress upon us this morning a new measure of your grace? Father, would we be willing to trust you Knowing who you are and how you conduct yourselves, yourself and how you love your children, Father, may we trust you this morning. And in so doing, may we follow you. May we be found to be obedient to that which you have called us to do because we know that you have called us to do it for our own good and for your glory. Father, would you impress upon us by your Spirit a fresh understanding of your imminence and your transcendence. And Father, even as we partake of communion this morning, would we be reminded afresh of that very transcendence and imminence that that sent the Son, Jesus Christ, into this world in order that he might die for those who believe. That he went to the cross and he bore the penalty for our sin. Even as we repent and trust in him. Father, would each one of us this morning give ourselves over to the reality of your salvation found in your son Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for it. And we pray this in your name. Amen.